The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, thy word, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that we live our Christian life on the basis of the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Yet, whenever we sin, Scripture says we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. That means He's no longer operating in terms of our spiritual life growth dynamics. So it's necessary, therefore, to make sure we're in fellowship by simply confessing our sins. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the instant we confess our sins, then we are restored to fellowship, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we can continue our advance in spiritual growth. So we always begin with just a few moments of silent prayer, and then I open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this wonderful privilege and opportunity in the freedom of this nation to gather together and worship you. That we do so by studying your word because that is the highest form of worship. That by studying your word, we learn how you have structured history. We learn how you have structured life. And we learn the divine viewpoint principles whereby we are supposed to live. Father, we pray that as we study these things, we will have our attention drawn more and more to realize that all of history and all of our lives should focus on your glory. And that everything that we have and everything that we experience in life is due to your grace and that your ultimate objective in our life is to mature us so that we can reflect the character of Jesus Christ and the thinking of Jesus Christ in our life. We pray that you would challenge us by the things that we study this evening. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this evening of Daniel, and I want to go back and look at Daniel chapter 3 and wrap up a few things. Last week we... uh, uh, tried to take a large bite out of Scripture and cover the whole episode of the three men in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the episode with the fiery furnace. But uh, it went over an hour, and the videotape back there only has an hour of tape on it. And since we're gearing that up to put on television, we need to make sure we go back and pick up where I bled over last time. So that gets on the tape also good review. 
Now, last time what we saw in our study of Daniel 3 was that Nebuchadnezzar, following the vision that he had uh, had or the dream that he had had in Daniel 2, the image of the uh, of the great image where David, I mean, excuse me, Daniel had identified him as the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar took that to heart. He, in typical ancient Near East practice, identified himself with God. He isn't to the point where he's understanding the God of Daniel to be the one and only God in the universe. He's still operating within his polytheistic framework of the many Babylonian gods, but he is being confronted again and again in each chapter with the reality of this God of the Jews. And so he identifies himself with this God and thinks that God's will is his will, his will is therefore God's will. So he is impressed with himself and who he is and what he has accomplished. Well, some time goes by between Daniel 2 and Daniel 3. We don't know for sure how much time has transpired between these two chapters. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation the Jews made of the Old Testament, has a phrase in here indicating that approximately 18 years had gone by. Now, that's, that's significant, and we'll look at why that's significant in a, in a little bit. But the significance primarily has to do with the fact that if 18 years had gone by from the time of the dream in Daniel 2, then this would put the events of Daniel 3 just after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., which is about the time that Nebuchadnezzar finally consolidated all of his empire. He would have just brought a large contingent of Jews out of Judea and into his kingdom, and so he would do something like this in order to ensure their their loyalty, ensure their obedience to his authority as the emperor. And it's also an indication that he is, he is identifying himself with God, and in typical ancient Near Eastern fashion, he is uh, beginning to take on the trappings of deity. So he sets up this idol and commands everybody to worship it at the sound of the orchestra. And when the orchestra played, everyone bowed down except for three men. And these three men are the, these three young boys we first looked at in chapter 1 who were de- deported from Jerusalem in 605 B.C. in the first deportation. Their names in, in uh, Hebrew were Hanani, Azariah, and Mishael. And each of their names, as we studied in uh, the first chapter, had to do with something about God, the worship, the honor, and the glory of God as Yahweh, the Jewish God. They were then given new names, and their new names, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all had something to do with one or more of the gods in the Babylonian pantheon. That was all part of the re-education of the, uh, of the Jews and trying to get them to think like Babylonians, to quit thinking like Jews, to quit thinking according to divine viewpoint, the one viewpoint that the Bible represents, and to get them to think according to the pagan thoughts and ideas of, of of Babylon. They refused to bow down. Now, we were told that uh, in about verse 11, or verse 10, that some of the Chaldeans, these were the upper echelon of the advisors to, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. These Chaldeans were among the priestly caste 
They were the elite among those who ran the nation, and they are loaded with jealousy. Now, let's remember a couple of things about these Chaldeans. They were the ones who were put on the spot some uh, 12 or 15 years earlier by Nebuchadnezzar himself when he had the dream. And he called in all of his advisors and said, Okay, I'm not sure I trust you guys. I want you to not only tell me what the dream means, but first off, you have to tell me the dream. And if, you're, if you really are who you claim to be, and if you're really as wise as you claim to be, then you can tell me the dream without me telling you. Well, they couldn't do that, and so the penalty was that he was going to destroy their homes, destroy their families, and, and he would make a public uh, toilet out of their, their homes, a dunghill. And then everyone would pass by, use the uh, public latrine as a demonstration of of uh, what Nebuchadnezzar thought of them and their, their abilities to uh, identify and interpret the dream. So they, have, they were uh, shown up at that time because Daniel came forward, and Daniel's God gave him the dream and gave him the interpretation of the dream. As a result of that, Daniel was promoted to be the prince, the leader over all of the Chaldeans and all of the astrologers and everyone in the State Department, and his three friends, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, are all promoted to high positions in what would be equivalent to their State Department at that time. So this is over all of these natural-born uh, Chaldeans who had a right by birth to the, these positions. So they are extremely jealous. And so when they come, to, um, come forward, they raise their complaint, and they, they tell Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel 3, verse 11, that uh, you, O king, or verse 10, you yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the orchestra uh, should fall down and worship. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And then in verse 12, they say there are certain Jews. Now, they don't name them. They identify them as Jews, which indicates the rise of anti-Semitism at this point. And that is blaming Jews for the problems. And, of course, they're blaming these Jews, these foreigners, for taking away their jobs and destroying their prestige and having an impact on, on their religion. So they call forth, uh, Nebuchadne- uh, or Nebuchadnezzar calls forth Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and challenges them and says, Well, I hear that you boys haven't bowed down. Now, uh, why don't you bow down? And so he gives them one opportunity. But they don't even take advantage of the opportunity. In verse 16, they are going to give their reply. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this, this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will uh, deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then verse 18, But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to uh, serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, I just noticed on our electronic slide here, we have a lot of words that are repeated that are doubled. I have no idea why that happened. I have had nothing but technological troubles for the last two weeks. It's all part of system testing. And that's the same kind of testing that these guys are going through. They're going through system testing 
and they are going through people testing. Some of the sometimes when we go through system testing, it's very impersonal. We have to deal with government forces. We have to deal with legislation. We have to deal with bureaucracies where nobody seems to be concerned about us as an individual. And so it's very easy to react and to get angry. And they don't. They are calm. And I want you to notice how calm they are in their answer. And they are trusting God. Now, their, their statement that if it be so, our, uh, that, that um, even if our God does not, doesn't mean that they doubt God. They just don't know what God's plan and purpose is. They don't know how God's going to deliver them uh, physically or if God's going to deliver them physically. But they do know that God has the power to, and therefore they are going to relax in the situation. And the reason they're able to relax is because these three men have so much doctrine in their souls that they have advanced to spiritual maturity so that they have mastered the details of life. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's a chart of the details of life. These are the things that we look to for meaning, for value, for significance in life. We look to love, money, friends, possessions, home life, the possession of a home, a career, fame or respect in what we do. Education. Many people think that if they just have a certain kind of education with certain degrees after their name, then then that will give them meaning and significance in life. Health. Various status symbols, the kind of car you drive, the neighborhood you live in, the things that, that you do. Now, those status symbols can be the status symbols of the wealthy or they can be the status symbols of the poor. And don't, don't kid yourselves. The poor have status symbols just like the wealthy do. They dress a certain way. They drive certain kinds of vehicles. Everybody has certain things that they think, if I just have these, then I will have it made and people will respect me and there will be meaning and value in life. And then, of course, many people think that sex, if they just had a good sex life, then they would be happy and everything would be wonderful. These are the details of life. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to lose all the details of life. In fact, they're about to lose life itself. And the reason that they can have a relaxed mental attitude is because they realize that life and happiness and the meaning in life does not derive from any of the details of life. It derives from a relationship with God. And in terms of the church age, post-Christian doctrine, that is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ by expressing our faith alone in Christ alone that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and therefore, by putting our faith alone in Christ alone, we can have eternal life. Now, they have that. And so for them, life itself is simply a means to serve God. And so if God has determined in His plan when they are to die, and they are to die in this fiery furnace today, then that's fine because they're going to be immediately absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The old things have passed away, and they will be promoted to a far superior life. So as far as they are concerned, whatever tortures, whatever uh, torments, whatever death or execution that Nebuchadnezzar has in mind is nothing compared to the glory that they are going to have at the instant they are separated from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. That's what we mean when we talk about a personal sense of our eternal destiny. 
When we are able to handle and face life's problems today because we understand what our destiny is as sons of God. For in the New Testament, every believer at the instant of salvation is adopted into the royal family of God. As a member of God's royal family, we have an eternal destiny. We are heirs of God and we are, based on our spiritual advance, to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And on that basis, we have an eternal destiny. That's what our focus should be on. And by having our focus on that eternal destiny, that enables us to handle, to endure, to surmount any heartache, any problem, any difficulty that we face in life today. And that's exactly what we see here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been given a number of blessings in life. They have been in the king's service for about 15 years, and they are at the top of the food chain, as it were, in Babylon. They have perhaps uh, almost anything that money could buy in that society. They are, are, have been loaded with the, uh, all the details of life. They probably have uh, wives by this time. They have families by this time. And yet, they do not punch the panic button. They do not react in anger. They do not challenge the king with the fact that he has an unjust law. That This is a case of the the state or the government trying to impose uh, religion on people in violation of divine institution number one, which is personal responsibility. And so they, they don't react that way. They are very relaxed and very calm. Everything they have is on the line, and they just relax and say, we're going to trust God. That's the faith rest drill. They have promises, they have principles, they have procedures from the Word of God, and they just relax and put everything in the Lord's hands. First uh, Peter uh, 5, 7 says, Casting all your cares upon Him, because He cares for you. So they are relaxed. Now notice the contrast with verse 19. They're calm and relaxed. Everything is at stake. Nebuchadnezzar, who's the most powerful, probably the wealthiest man in all the world at this time, he is the the king over the Babylonian Empire, which is one of the greatest empires of all of human history. He was a uh, he had, because of his own military genius, defeated the armies of the Assyrians, defeated the armies of the Egyptians, and had conquered all of the territory in what we know as the Middle East. And he had accumulated all of this wealth to himself. He is now at a stage in life. When things are going to be very calm and peaceful, he has conquered all of his enemies. The borders are about to be secure because uh, we know that if this took place about 586, 585 B.C., then, then that was the end of his wars. And so he should be at a point where he can relax because he has all the details of life, and he's in charge. But they are relaxed, ready to lose all the details of life because they're irrelevant. He's Filled with wrath. Verse 19, he just goes berserk. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with wrath. So much so his facial expression is altered. He just absolutely loses control. And when he loses control, he loses objectivity. He loses the ability to think clearly and rationally. And when he does that, he's going to end up sacrificing some of his best warriors, his best soldiers. And he is going to make start making Foolish decisions. But the reason is, and this is where we have to keep our focus, the reason is that Nebuchadnezzar is still operating on arrogance. He has been confronted with the existence of God. 
on two occasions he has seen a demonstration of the importance of doctrine. In chapter 1, we saw that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Daniel, stood firm for the truth of God's word, and so they challenged the dietary uh, restrictions of the Babylonians. They stayed with their, were able to stay with their Jewish dietary restrictions, and so they passed at the head of the class. Then in Daniel chapter 2, the episode with the, the dream, that Daniel revealed the dream, no one else could reveal the dream or its interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar has been confronted on two occasions with the reality and the existence of this God, and yet he hasn't submitted to the existence of that God. He has acknowledged his existence as one of many gods, but he is still in rebellion. He is still following after uh, cosmic thinking, which asserts both arrogance and antagonism to God, and we see that in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We saw last time by looking at Romans 1, 18-20, that the the dynamic that occurs in negative volition is when a person rejects God, something must fill that vacuum. And we worship something instead of God. And so he's worshiping his own religious conception here. And he just goes berserk when he doesn't get his way. And as arrogance, and as a man filled with arrogance, as a man who is uh, the most powerful man in the world, he can get his way through sheer intimidation. And that is exactly what he's practicing here. You, you're not going to worship, do what I want you to do, then I'll make you do it, and we're going to just heat that furnace up seven times more. Now, we saw last time that the problem with that is that, that the hotter you get, get the furnace, the people would just vaporize. There's no torture involved there. He should have cooled it down a good bit if he wanted them to suffer and be tortured. So he's not thinking clearly. And it's so hot that the warriors who take them up on top of this huge conical furnace, it was, a, it was a cone-shaped furnace, which would develop the greatest heat, and they had a ladder on the outside, and they would take them up. And it was so hot that it killed the soldiers. These were some of the strongest men, strongest warriors in the army. And as they took them to the top, they managed to get them to the top before they died, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell in. So we see that in verse uh, 20 and uh, Verse 20, he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their, in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Now, the point, the reason the text makes a point about their clothing, this was their uniform. The trousers really refers to an undergarment. Uh, the uh, coats refers to the outer, uh, the outer garment that they wore, the outer robe. Their caps refers to their turbans. And normally in an execution system like this, people were stripped down to just bare underclothes. But all their clothes are left on. It's going to make a point because when they come out, their clothes are not going to be burned, singed, or even have the smell of fire on them. So they um, heat up the fire in verse 22, and the men that take them up there are slain. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 23, fall into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. They just fall in. You would think that the fall would hurt them. But no, when Nebuchadnezzar looks in, he's astounded. He stood up in haste said to his high officials, Was it not 
The three men we cast bound into the midst of fire. I mean, he's just, the verb tenses here, the participles that are used instead of your uh, regular finite verbs, indicate that he is very active. He is just bouncing around. He is just absolutely beside himself. He can look inside and see that there are no longer three men, but there are four men. Verse 25, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, the Aramaic here is quite interesting. It can be translated, technically, a son of the gods. But the phraseology here is very similar to the Hebrew. And, and the Hebrew would be B'nai Elohim. Here it's Bar, that's the Aramaic for son, is Bar Elohim. And it's the same phrase that you would find to say the Son of God, because Elohim in the Aramaic or Elohim in the Hebrew refers to God. Even though it's a plural ending, it's called a plural of majesty, indicating the Trinity. So here you have a, the use of Elohim here, and should be translated, as the King James Version does, as the, with the singular God, because the person that is there is further identified in verse uh, let me see, in verse uh, 28 and 29, that he is an angel, and the angel of God, the angel of Yahweh, is the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see a wonderful example of the contrast between believers who are willing to put everything on the line, Believers who have a relaxed mental attitude, and that relaxed mental attitude can only come because they've mastered the details of life. Now, why do you, are they able to master the details of life? Because they've understood grace. See, Nebuchadnezzar has had all this special revelation, the dream, the interpretation by Daniel. He is seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state in the furnace, and yet he is rejecting grace. He has had a tremendous Revelation from God, and yet he rejects that. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were grace-oriented. And it's only by understanding that everything that we have is from God. It's not because of who we are. No matter how talented you might be, no matter how intelligent, no matter how industrious, no matter how hard you've worked, you don't have a single thing in your possession that wasn't given you by the grace of God. You did not earn or deserve any of it. And if you don't believe me, just wait. God can take it all away from you tomorrow, and you may not do anything different. I have, um, I've seen this happen time and time again with people. Uh, one day they are working hard, they're diligent, they're doing everything just as they've always done it. And the next day, because of something that happens, it's not their fault. Maybe it has to do with the uh, movements in the economy as a whole, or maybe it has to do with uh, uh, nothing that's related to their personal life at all. All of a sudden, they're out of a job. One day, everything is going great. They're making uh, $150,000 a year or $200,000 a year, they ha and nothing happens. They don't change the way they do business. They, their reputation isn't affected. All of a sudden, the next day, though, th there's no more clients. It dries up overnight. I've seen that happen several times in people's life. And that just shows that nothing that we have is from our own effort. Everything we have is from the grace of God, and that's why we need to be so grateful for and give thanks for everything that we have. Now, as I said last time, we needed to conclude with six points of conclusion.
First of all, it takes years for God to work on a person. We're going to see this again in the next chapter. In the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is finally going to come to know Jesus Christ, at least in an Old Testament revelation sense, as his Savior. The Old Testament people were saved because they trusted God as their Savior. They anticipated the provision of a Savior. And too often today, as we're going to see, too often today we think of evangelism as sort of a one-shot thing. We sit down, we give somebody a tract, or we get a few minutes to talk to them, and we explain the gospel, that they're a sinner, that we're all sinners, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And then we explain the need for salvation. And uh, we might get some questions. They might, may not be uh, uh, ready to listen at all. They may have grown up in some religious background where they have all manner of questions about uh, this ritual or that situation or this historical thing they heard or what about this interpretation of the Bible. And we just get frustrated. But we need to realize we're part of a process, that there may be 20 different people in the course of that person's life that are going to be used by the Holy Spirit to witness to them. And we're just one in that whole chain. And it may take 15, 20, 25 years before that person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. First time he's confronted with any witness about the God of uh, the Jews is in 605 B.C. We know that he heard the gospel from Jeremiah. We know he, when, when he went in in 586 B.C., just before this event in Daniel 3, when he went in in 586 B.C. and destroyed Jerusalem, he discovered that Jeremiah was in prison. Now, Jeremiah's ministry was basically to warn the Jews that they were about to go out under the fifth cycle of discipline. God had warned the Jews in uh, Leviticus 26 that there would be five stages, five uh, different degrees of discipline on the nation for their disobedience. The most extreme was the fifth cycle, the fifth uh, level of discipline, at which time they would be removed from the land for a period of time, and they're under the fifth cycle of discipline today and have been since 70 A.D. The first time they went out under the fifth cycle was in 586 B.C., and so uh, Jeremiah had warned the nation, don't fight, don't resist Nebuchadnezzar. If you fight, you're going to lose. People will be killed. You'll suffer. It'll be miserable. Just give up. Just surrender because God is, God's hand is in this and God is taking us out under the fifth cycle of discipline. Well, he was viewed as a traitor. They threw him in prison. Well, Nebuchadnezzar heard what he had done, so Nebuchadnezzar let him out of prison. So... Jeremiah witnessed to him. Of course, before that time, he had been witnessed to by Daniel and by these three men. And he's wit- he, he is witnessed to again. And then the events of chapter 4 come about fifteen year, 10 to 15 years later. We don't know exactly when those events occurred, but we do know that it was late in his reign. He ends his reign by about um, 562. 563, somewhere in there is the end of his, of his reign. And so he has to uh, have time for the seven years of insanity and a couple of years after that to uh, proclaim the gospel. So he's got about another 12 years before he is saved. So it takes years for God to work on a person, and sometimes they, mean, they may seem negative. They may seem hardened. They may be very resistant, but we never know. We're to continue to pray for them 
and continue to give them the gospel. The second point, when there's an issue demanding separation, as they are to separate from the world, these three men are to separate from the world and not bow down, then make sure that the issue is the character of God and the, speci- the integrity of Scripture. And by that I mean the specific mandate of Scripture. Don't just say, well, I don't think I ought to do that because the biblical principle is whatever. I knew somebody that I had grown up with in high school, and, and we all know that, that there are, there are ju- just taxations and unjust taxations. And he felt like uh, it was uh, erroneous. It wasn't biblical to have an income tax, so he never paid his income tax. And he tried to uh, uh, use this kind of a thing that's not biblical. Well, that's a, not a specific statement in Scripture. It may be a, a, an ad, accurate inference, but it is not a specific statement of Scripture. When we are going to take a stand like this, it needs to be on the basis of a specific mandate or prohibition of Scripture. Third point we looked at, the most powerful witness in those situations, these kinds of pressure situations, is the actions, the works, and the words of the individual. Not just the works alone, but the words. There needs to be interpretation. The unbeliever is not going to look at your life, and you live your life before the Lord, and you apply doctrine, and you want your life to be a witness But if you don't ever explain what it's a witness to, how is the unbeliever going to know what the issue is? So they're not going to be able to accurately interpret your spiritual life, your life's witness, if you don't say something. Point four. During times when God is silent, when the canon is closed, for example, they had no prophet to tell them exactly what God's will was. All they could say was, if God will deliver us, He will. If He won't, He won't. Nevertheless, we're going to trust Him. Uh, All we can do is relax, utilize the faith rest drill. That's believe what the promises of God say and rest. That is, rest in His power and provision to take care of us. See, these three men survived the pressure inside the furnace. Not because they lived, but because they didn't react with mental attitude sins. That's how they survived. They are confronted. They, they have a system test to deal with as well as people testing. They are uh, the victims of the malicious, vengeful tactics of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are out to get them, even though the Chaldeans were correct in saying, well, look at those guys. They didn't bow down to the idol. Even though that was a correct statement, it was done out of vengeance. They wanted to get back at these Jews. Now, in situations like that, it's very easy for us to react in anger, for us to respond and, and uh, get upset, to get angry, to say something, to call names, whatever it might be. It's very easy to respond that way. Yet they didn't. They stayed relaxed and calm. They knew that God was going to take care of them no matter what. Even if they were burned alive, God was going to take care of them. And that's part of Uh, The grace provision of God. It reminds me of an episode that occurred in the English Reformation. Thomas Cranmer was the archbishop under Henry VIII and then under uh, his son Edward and then under Bloody Mary. And Bloody Mary was the uh, second uh, uh, offspring of Henry VIII to take the throne of England. And she had been raised a Roman Catholic. Her brother, who had been the first um, 
descendant of Henry to take the throne, was raised a Protestant. And during his brief time on the throne of England, after this was in the mid-1500s, uh, mid-16th century, during his brief time, he legitimized the Protestant church. Well, as soon as she came in, she made it illegitimate. And uh, Thomas Cranmer was a Protestant archbishop. And so he had to recant, and they began to, they threw him in prison, and they began to torture him. And they put him on the rack, and they stretched him out, and, and finally they forced him to, to uh, they told him that if he would recant, that they would not burn him at the stake. And so finally, under all the torture, he recanted of his Protestant beliefs, and then his torturer said, well, it took you too long, we're going to burn you at the stake anyway. We don't believe your recantation. And so they took him out, and they uh, were going to burn him at the stake, and at that point, as they tied him up on the stake, he recanted of his recantation and proclaimed the gospel to all who would hear. And so they came up, and see, they knew how to torture people. They weren't going to make it so hot they would vaporize. They were going to burn them very slowly, and it was a very painful death. And, and Bloody Mary was called Bloody Mary because she uh, martyred uh, so many Protestants on the fields of Smith, Smithfield at that time that the, uh, it said that the grass grew from the blood of the martyrs. So Cranmer st- stood on the, his, what was his funeral pyre. She was lashed to the stake, and they lit the fire, and as the flames began to rise and began to burn at his feet and his ankles, he held out his hand, the hand that had signed the recantation, and he said, this hand blasphemed the name of God, and I'm going to burn, let it burn off first because of what it did. And so he held his hand in the flames, and while it burned, he sang hymns to the glory of God. Now that's somebody who has a relaxed mental attitude in the midst of incredible suffering and pressure. And that's the same mental attitude. That's the same kind of, of relaxed tranquility and stability in the midst of pressure that is available to every one of us if we learn doctrine, store it in our souls, and use it in times of pressure. So during times when God is silent, we handle the situation through the faith rest drill and using wisdom principles from Bible doctrine in our souls. Fifth point, some of our most difficult testing will come when there is no other believer around. See, they didn't have Daniel there as the leader to help them out. So this is designed to teach us to stand on our own spiritual two feet. And then finally, you're not promoted unless God promotes you. And at the end, Nebuchadnezzar calls them forth from the fiery furnace. And if we look down at verse 26 and 27, we see the results of this. Verse 27, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, that's the entire bureaucratic framework for the Babylonian Empire, And the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men. They're all gathering up and peering into that fiery furnace. And they see all three men and the fourth man, the Son of God. And they see everyone. And then they saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. So these men all witnessed the grace of God in delivering these men. They all witnessed their faith. They all witnessed this miracle. And they were going to go back to their various regions and towns and cities 
where they came from, and they were going to be many of them were witnesses for God after this. Now, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded, and he's going to praise God and release the servants. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. So he recognizes the principle of trust, but it's good for them, but not for himself. So he rejects the grace of God, and notice he's going to swing from arrogance in one direction, intimidating everybody in the, in the nation to bow down to the idol, to arrogance in the other direction. Now he's going to force everybody to, to respect the God of the Jews. So he says um, in verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice he doesn't say the only God. He doesn't say the only true God. He is just another God. He's still a polytheist. He's still in his unbelief, and he's just as arrogant as he ever was. And this is the foundation for the problem he's going to have in the fourth chapter. Anyone who speaks anything offensive, anyone who speaks anything derogatory against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. You get a hint of what Nebuchadnezzar's character must be like. There doesn't seem to be any halfway measure with him. Anytime anybody disobeys him, they're going to destroy the family, everybody's going to be torn limb from limb, and the house is going to be turned into a dung heap. He just doesn't, there's no middle ground with him. We're not going to put anybody in prison. We're not just going to hang them. We're going to go all the way. Everybody in the family is going to be destroyed. They're all going to be torn limb from limb, and the house is turned into a, a public latrine. So he, you, you get the, the extremist there. He's just as intimidating as he ever was, just as arrogant as he ever was, and he once again rejects the grace of God. But in that, he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper. That means he blessed them materially, he provided for them, and he advanced them in rank. So that's our last point, that you're not promoted unless God promotes you. Now, some years go by. As we see the end of that episode, we realize that, that as, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced those tests, and advanced, Nebuchadnezzar failed his test. He's having a prosperity test. He doesn't have an adversity test. He has a prosperity test, and he fails. He fails because he thinks that it's all up to him. He has rejected what Daniel told him back in Daniel 2. When Daniel said, you are the head of gold, he also told him that you rule because God puts you in this place. You are the head of gold because God put you there, not because of who you are or what you've done, Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar fails the prosperity test. He thinks that everything he has comes from his own resources. He thinks everything he has comes from his own talent and his own ability. Now, he was talented. He was one of the most brilliant men in history. He was one of the most talented men in history. He had incredible ability, but he wasn't the ruler of Babylon because of that. He was the ruler of Babylon because God placed him there. So he fails the prosperity test, and he operates on pure arrogance. So we're told in chapter 4 
that something dramatic happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He is going to finally pass the test. Now, chapter 4 is one of the most unusual chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, it's the only Scripture in the Old Testament, to my knowledge, written by a Gentile. It's the only Scripture in the Old Testament written by a brand new baby believer. And it is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony to what God has done in his life, and it's his testimony to his salvation. And it is an example of how, of the enthusiasm of a new believer that too often is lost as we go through life, but the enthusiasm of a new believer to explain the gospel and to give the gospel to those who are in need of salvation. And this, remember, is one of the greatest men of all of human history, one of the most powerful men of all of human history, and this is his testimony of what God had done for him. Now, we know that these events took place toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life. We have indications from um, several extra-biblical sources. For example, one Babylonian writer in the 3rd century B.C. named Barosus indicates something strange happened toward the end of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, reign. And there were other indications from several other writers in the ancient world, nothing, nothing definitive, nothing uh, spectacular that we can quote, just inferences that at the end of his reign, something uh, traumatic happened to Nebuchadnezzar for a number of years. And this is the story of what happened, his insanity, how, why God caused him to go insane and to have this disease, which some identify with uh, zoanth- a zo- zoanthropy, which is a Disease, a mental disease where a person takes on all the characteristics of an animal, eats grass, uh, lives like an animal, loses the use of their natural faculties, and uh, in his case he recovered and recognized that God was the one who actually was in control, not himself. Now we can show that this happened late in his life by by dating some of these other events. For example, I stated earlier that Daniel 3 took place uh, probably the year after or right after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. For example, in Jeremiah 25, verse 1, Jeremiah said that the conquest occurred in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim. That's the, um, the invasion in 605. That, that was in the, uh, when uh, Daniel and the others were taken captive. But Daniel, using the Babylonian system of counting the years, said that it was in the third year. That's in Daniel 1.1. Well, why that contrast? Well, I explained that in the Babylonian system, if I were to come to the throne now in, in September of 2001, this would not be my first year. This would just be the accession year. The first year of the reign would not be until next year. So 2002 would be counted as the first year. In the Palestinian way of reckoning, if uh, you came to the throne in September of 2001, then 2001 would be reckoned as your first year on the throne. So that means the Bab- that the Palestinian uh, numbers are going to be one year larger than the Babylonian numbers. Well, we know that in Jeremiah 52.12, that in the... 
uh, 19th year of, um, in the, it was in the 19th year in 586 B.C. that that was the 19th year of the reign of Zedekiah when Jerusalem was ransacked by Nebuchadnezzar. But in the Babylonian system, which was the note from the Septuagint, said it was the 18th year. Well, if you add, add that together, that would indicate that, that um, that was the same year. So if these events in Daniel chapter 3 occurred at the same time or just after the sacking of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. when the nation's taken out in, in captivity, then Daniel chapter 4 probably occurred 10 years later. So from 605 B.C. to roughly 575, which is a period of at least 30 years, Nebuchadnezzar has been getting a solid witness of the gospel from Daniel, from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's seen all these miracles, and yet nothing has made a dent. He is still operating on arrogance. Now, if we put all these chapters together, what we're going to see is a profile of how God works on a pagan, in a pagan culture, to bring someone to salvation during the time of the Gentiles. Remember, starting in 605, Jerusalem is under the control of Gentiles. It's referred to in Luke as the time of the Gentiles. And so we see something of how God the Holy Spirit is working outside the framework of Israel to bring people to salvation. And as we look at this, we're going to discover some important principles of evangelism. And the first one is that we've indicated already is that it takes years of evangelism sometime before uh, someone is finally saved. And that ought to be a great comfort to many of us who have witnessed time and time again to family members, to friends, to co-workers, and we always seem to have resistance And yet we never know how God the Holy Spirit is working on them in order to convict them of the truth of Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar had some of the best. He had not only had saw miracles before his very eyes, he saw the example of Daniel revealing to him his dream and interpreting the dream. He also had the gospel explained to him by Jeremiah, probably Ezekiel, And Daniel, so three of the greatest Bible teachers in Israel's history, witnessed to him. And yet there's no response. That tells us something. That it's not up to our ability, is it? It's not up to our uh, intelligence, our the way we craft the gospel. It's we can't go away and say, "Oh, gee, I really fouled up today." If I just said this, if I just said that, then maybe they would have responded. Remember, it's not up to us. It's up to God the Holy Spirit. Our job is to make it as clear as possible, but God the Holy Spirit is going to take care of making sure that the individual hears the truth. They're going to understand the gospel clearly. He does that in all kinds of ways. I've been in churches where the pastor was really meant something else, even though he used orthodox vocabulary. I've heard pastors explain the gospel even though they believed in a moral or an example view of the, of the atonement, even though they didn't believe that in the total depravity of mankind, even though they didn't believe in eternal lake of fire, they would still say, use the biblical words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And people would believe the truth. Because God the Holy Spirit takes the truth and makes it clear, and God the Holy Spirit 
is going to get rid of all that extraneous stuff that just clouds the issue. So just make sure that we do what we're supposed to do in witnessing, and that's make the issue clear. As clear as we can. Not as clear as somebody with a Ph.D. and a T.H.D. would make it clear, but as clear as you can. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to use that. I mean, if Nebuchadnezzar can't understand the gospel after listening to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, how much better can it get? You see, the problem is not an intellectual problem. The problem is one of depravity. And the fallen man on negative volition doesn't want to uh, submit to the gospel and trust Christ alone for his salvation. And God worked in a specific way in Nebuchadnezzar's life, an unusual way. There are only two or three other examples in history where he ever worked in, in uh, the life of anybody like this. Uh, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus would be another. But God knew, and he did this for a particular reason, because this testimony would stand throughout all of time. Now let's look at the opening part of this section. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all of the earth. Now immediately, I want you to notice that this is an official decree. It starts off with a formal introduction. It's from Nebuchadnezzar the king, and he uses the phrase peoples, nations, and men of every language, just as he has throughout the last two chapters, to indicate everybody who's living in Babylon. This is a public decree. In fact, the word that is used uh, down in verse 3, or down, excuse me, in verse 2, to declare the signs and wonders is the same word used of the decree he made back in verse 29 of the previous chapter. This is a national statement, but I want you to notice he's not intimidating anybody anymore. There's no intimidation here. In chapter 4, we saw him forcing everybody to bow down and worship the idol. At the end, he's telling everybody, if you don't respect the God of the Jews, then you're going to be torn limb from limb and your house is turned into a public latrine. But here he respects the volition of the individual, and all he's doing is relating what he learned about God and how God taught him about grace and how he came to be saved. So he recognizes volition in this. You can never force anybody to be a believer. There's no coercion that will ever change them from negative volition to positive volition. So he's going to make this a public decree. Now think about this. Here's the greatest individual, the greatest personality, the greatest power in the ancient world at this time. And he, as a result of what took place, as a result of the witness of four men, he comes to be saved. And he is going to witness to everyone in the Babylonian Empire. There wasn't anybody in the Babylonian Empire that could say, I never heard the gospel. They heard the gospel from Nebuchadnezzar. This was proclaimed in every town, in every village, in every hamlet, in every rural setting throughout all of the Babylonian empires. As a formal decree from the king, it would have been read throughout the land, and everyone would have heard it. So it is an official government decree that shows that the world got the gospel many times in the ancient world. We can think of other examples like this. For example, when Jonah went to Nineveh, Nineveh was going to be destroyed by God, and yet God said if they repent, that is, if they change their mind toward me, 
and accept the gospel, then I will allow them to continue and I will not destroy their city. And they, they responded positively. When Jonah preached the gospel to Nineveh, everyone got saved. The word went out throughout the entire Assyrian Empire and there were hundreds of thousands of people in Assyria who trusted Christ as their Savior. And that was a witness in the ancient world. It happened here under Nebuchadnezzar. It happened again under Cyrus. When, when the uh, Medes and the Persians come in and defeat the Babylonians, Cyrus is going to become a believer as a result of the witness of Daniel, and he too is going to make public pro- proclamation. And during that generation, there were many Persians who were saved. And again, in the next kingdom following that, under Alexander the Great, there will be a number of people who are saved. Not to the same degree, because Alexander never made that kind of a public proclamation. But we know from historical records that when Alexander conquered the the Middle East, the area around uh, Judah and Syria, that the high priest in Jerusalem sent messengers to Alexander and said, if you will come to the temple in Jerusalem, we will show you in the holy books, and by that he meant Daniel, that God prophesied your coming, God prophesied your kingdom and everything about you. And so Alexander went out of his way to go to Jerusalem. He went into the temple, and the priests explained to Alexander everything that Daniel said about the third kingdom of Greece. And Nebuchadnezzar bowed down, not to the high priest, but to the God whom the high priest served. And we don't know if that means that Alexander was a believer, but we do know that, that Alexander always honored the Jews. He was never anti-Semitic, and he always promoted Jews to key positions in his empire because of their administrative skill. So this is not something that's unusual in the ancient world. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to make public proclamation of the gospel. And so we are going to learn next time how Nebuchadnezzar witnessed to the Babylonian Empire and learn some principles about evangelism from that with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see the tremendous uh, difference an understanding of doctrine makes in the life of an individual. There are too many believers who don't understand enough doctrine. Their lives are no different from the unbelievers around them. But as we see with Nebuchadnezzar, as he comes to understand grace and and is saved, that we see this tremendous transformation that takes place in his life. The arrogance is gone, and he is uh, truly humble toward you and, and teachable. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word and to understand the, the dynamics of salvation, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening who's without faith and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make their eternal destiny certain. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's not a matter of works, ritual, bargaining with God, moral reformation, or any other factor. It's just a matter of putting your faith alone in Christ alone. He did all the work. We simply accept it. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.